I'm Adam Rutherford, and you're listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience. You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 231. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Pontus Böckmann. See ya. Hey, Sadhesan. How are you, Andros? Oh, not bad, thank you. Yeah. I'm really lo- looking forward to this uh, weekend when the first day of me to go out and work as a tour guide Ooh. will happen. Wow. Since mid February. Wow. I wonder yeah. if you remember how to do that now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you've forgotten everything. Well, I'm pretty sure that this is something that you don't forget, especially after having done it for 12 years. Mm. So okay. I might still remember a couple of things. <laughs> Maybe, maybe. <laughs> I'm having a, a, a fantastic holiday, actually. Yeah, after, are you? Yeah, yeah we, we are. Uh, and uh, I mentioned this before on the podcast, but now we're playing golf uh, quite a lot in the family. And uh, we don't play very well. But it's still fun. <laughs> but you're enthusiastic. Uh, yes. And it's good to have my son. He's 16 now and he, he wants to, Daddy, get, come with me to the golf course now. We have to do this. I want to try, try this new club and blah, 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 blah. So that's very nice. Mm. Do you take your mom with you as well? My mom? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's oh, 81. Okay. So I think, uh, I don't say it's ever too late to p- take up golf, but I wonder if she hasn't got other interests. So, <laughs> Okay. Is she, oh, she's too busy uh, staying home and listening to us. Uh, yes, she is an avid listener to the podcast. So hello, mom. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and we have uh, quite a nice thing to offer to our listeners, including your mom. This week, <laughs> yeah. we recorded an interview with Adam Rutherford, Woo-hoo! the famous British geneticist mm. who's an amazing public speaker as well. Yeah, he's a great guy, great science communicator, and uh, yes, he is fantastic. And we talked about his new book. That's right. Or the topic of his new book, which is how to argue with a racist. So that's uh, a very current topic. It's very current. And Mm. occasionally we touch a little bit on politics and political issues. But I think it was about time for us to discuss this issue uh, from a scientific point of view. So I really hope that our listeners would love it as much as we did. But we would absolutely welcome any kind of feedback, even if you didn't like it. We won't tell Adam, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but why wouldn't you? He's absolutely amazing. But since uh, we are in a bit of a changing period as well, since uh, Yelena left us, I think it's uh, the best time for everyone to give us some feedback, to, to send us some ideas. Absolutely. If you have some ideas as to whom to interview, so interview ideas, topic ideas, news that uh, you think we might miss without you bringing our attention to it uh yeah feel free to contact us we always love hearing from you you can do that through lots of different channels you can find us on facebook you can find us on twitter at espodcast underscore eu and you can write us an email Mm. info at the esp.eu and uh, we both uh, get that so uh, we will not miss anything that comes through there or if you go on the esp website which is the esp.eu you can find a contact form there so feel free to uh, Mm. contact us through there too yeah, we always love to hear from the listeners. Yeah. Uh, we would also love if you would find it in your hearts to go to uh, Patreon slash the ESP and pledge to send us a dollar or two per episode. It, we really appreciate it and helps us stay in business, if you will. I know there's a lot of 
a lot of people have a lot of problems these days yeah. and uh, so if you can't do it that's fine we can always listen for free but if you want to help us please send us a little money through patreon that, that we appreciate that very much yeah and it, it helps the show going we have a few expenses as well and uh, obviously we don't make much money out of it but if we need more equipment or something like that then uh, we can afford that with your help so thank you very much to everyone who's been supporting us for so long mm. but i think without further ado we should probably crack on with the interview with adam brotherford every now and then we interview someone whose works we think to be of interest to our listeners and skeptics around europe since the terrible death of George Floyd in the US, the issue of racism has been a major topic of public discourse. So we thought it was time for us to look into the science of race, racism, and what can be done to tackle it. And the best person to ask about all that is the brilliant British geneticist, broadcaster, science journalist and author, Dr. Adam Rutherford. He has written several books of international acclaim, like Creation, the Origin of Life and the Future of Life, A Brief History of Everyone Who Have Ever Lived, The Book of Humans, The Story of How We Became Us, and Humanimal, How Homo Sapiens Became Nature's Most Paradoxical Creature. Avid podcast listeners might know him from the BBC Radio 4 shows Inside Science and The Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry. But he also frequently appears on TV, both as presenter and as an expert in genetics. Adam frequently appears as a speaker at Skeptics in the Pub events, and on the same day this interview goes out, he will be giving a talk on Skeptics in the Pub online that bears the same title as his latest book, How to Argue with a Racist, History, Science and reality. Adam, a very warm welcome to the show. Well, it's very nice to be here. I think it would be best for us to begin with a clarification of certain concepts so that we have something to build on uh, later on. So would you mind enlightening us about what is racism, what is systemic racism, and what is scientific racism? Yes. Well, I am somewhat opposed to definitions across <laughs> most of biology. I, the latest episode of Curious Cases that I do with Hannah Fry is about species concepts and in which I express my own skepticism and um, problems mm -hmm. with how we do taxonomy, which is largely derived from Linnaeus's work, uh, a fellow Swede of yours. And um, I, I found that over the last few years, my reticence about definitions has expanded well beyond biological taxonomy. But, you know, humans, Richard Dawkins said, said we are plagued by the tyranny of the discontinuous mind, and we do like to define things. So I'll, I'll give it a go for the benefit of the <laughs> listeners, even though I like to put many caveats on this, which is to say that I find definitions to be often unhelpful. So there is no one definition of what racism is. The one that I am most wedded to in the book is it's basically the combination of prejudice and prejudicial action. So it's not simply... Mm -hmm that one is prejudice or ex expresses prejudice towards individuals or certain groups of people, it is that that manifests itself in action which is also prejudicial towards those individuals or those people. Now, structural racism relates very closely to that, and, and this is really important because although some people are racist in the sense that it is a case of insulting people of different ethnicities or different skin colors or different people from around the world. That, and that is a very real problem. Structural racism is this sort of society-wide uh, cultural basis on which racist practices are, are enacted. And that is much more difficult to recognize. It is effectively the system in, in almost all societies that exist, but particularly in the West with regards to how we're talking about race and I guess this conversation, which is the inbuilt, ingrained system which serves uh, prejudicial action against specific groups of people. And in almost all cases, because we're talking about Western European-based racism, in almost all cases, that is effectively a form of small w, small s white supremacy, because for almost the entirety of European history, white people have been the predominant population and also the power base. And so mm -hmm. structural racism really only becomes uh, formalized into, its, into the current form that we recognize today with the introduction of the third part of that question, which was scientific racism, which is during the era of European expansionism 
colonialization, which is also, you know, synonymous with what we refer to as the Age of Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution. And I, I have problems with both of those terms, largely to do with my issues with definitions that I mentioned earlier. Um, but that also marks the birth of taxonomy, biological taxonomy and classification, which includes humans, including by people like Linnaeus, Voltaire and Kant and others. But in all cases during that era, this is not merely taxonomy and classification of humans, it is hierarchical. And as I alluded to just a second ago, in all cases, it puts white Europeans at the top of that hierarchy. And so you've got the combination of those three things. So structural racism, general racism, which is relate, how, how that relates to structural racism, and how all of this is built upon a foundation, which is the marshalling or the co-opting of what we now regard as pseudoscience, but at the time was sort of natural philosophy and science in the 17th and 18th centuries, but the marshalling of that into supporting uh, racist ideologies and white supremacist ideologies. Uh, you mentioned the era when scientific racism came about, and one of the results of that was this phenotypical kind of categorization of humans when they are divided into races. And uh, when I started school, uh, at the early years of our school, it was uh, taught to us uh, that, that it was the case. So what does science have to say about this kind of categorization? Yeah, this is why this is, the history is important to the genetics you know, and, and the science more broadly. I, I am a geneticist. I'm not a historian. I'm not a race historian. But knowing one's own history is essential, I, I argue, in understanding society and, and structural racism within society today. And what I'm most concerned with, apart from fighting racism, is how it, in, the, in the 21st century, there has been a, a sort of utilization or abuse of science to, in order to justify bigotry and justify racism, which seems to be on, on the return. And I, I, I want to deny racists that opportunity. And so genetics is, a, is effectively a, a relatively young science. It's only 100 years old in any meaningful sense. And it's only really 20 years old in terms of understanding our DNA at a sophisticated level. But it was born out of earlier academic and intellectual disciplines such as anthropology and the mm -hmm. general study of human variants. And these are effectively born out of colonialism. And as we Europeans expanded across, across the world and started experiencing and engaging with people of other cultures, which again relates to the taxonomy of those people, the classification of those people, which was used to justify subjugation. And so you've got the birth of the science of classification in the 17th century or also with many European men trying to categorize. And as you say, almost entirely determined by phenotypic characteristics. Well, not, not almost, absolutely determined by phenotypic characteristics, but also significantly primarily by pigmentation, by skin color. And so, you know, the most obvious example of that is is with Linnaeus, who categorizes humans into five groups. And the first word of each one of those descriptions is their skin color. The second, third, and fourth words in those descriptions, and this is in the, I think, from memory, the fourth edition of Systemane Insure, which is his big book on taxonomy. He also associates those, those pig pigmentations with behavioral characteristics, such as laziness or haughtiness or greed or capriciousness or sexual depravity, except in the case of Europeans, in which it is gentle acuteness and beauty and inventiveness. Right? So there's a very clear value judgments going on at the same time as trying to classify people primarily by pigmentation. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned that you, you were taught these racial classifications because there's never really been any sort of settled decision on how many races there are in the era of scientific racism in, in the past. And it does range from, well, one, five with uh, Linnaeus, but in fact, a continuous between one and 63 is the highest I've, I've uh, come up with. <laughs> oh, and that wow. is, yeah, that's noted by Darwin himself. So he actually points out in The Descent of Man in 1871 mm -hmm. that no one can agree on how many races there are, which you might think would be demonstrative of its uh, fallibility as, as a concept. And in fact, that is correct. It is not a robust biological concept. And that is what we've demonstrated in the late 20th century and early 21st century with the actual pool from which human variance is derived, which is our DNA. And so when we look at our DNA, what we find is 
that there are clusterings of populations, and these are largely moderated by geographical land masses, but they are continuous between land masses, and that, that includes ocean boundaries as, as well. And you, you might think when looking at those first attempts at categorizing people via genetics back in the early 2000s, that they actually recapitulate at least Linnaeus's categorizations and Blumenbach's categorizations from the 17th and 18th centuries. But in fact, they don't. And that's, that, that is one of the things that comes up a lot in contemporary scientific racism discussions. It's, it's quite technical and it's quite to, to do with the type of analysis used and it's to do with trying to understand what markers in the genome you're actually looking at. And one of the points of the book is that I want to go into enough detail that a layperson can follow the arguments and won't be bamboozled by someone who is defending the position of biological race using contemporary genetics. Because the, the truth of the matter is that almost all professional geneticists, all of my colleagues, these are non-controversial ideas. But in the age of social media and the age of ready distribution of information online, there has been a small but concerted group of people who are they go by various names, human biodiversity, scientific racism is one that we refer to them as because the, the, much of their actions are, are in fact, the defense of scientific racism. But they utilize the fact that we have access to genomic data to say, look, biology does recapitulate ideas of race and therefore race is, is a biological reality. And that is just not the case. Whether they then go on further to offer up sort of pernicious racism is, is a sort of a different matter. I think the role of me and other geneticists in talking about race in the 21st century and how it relates to genetics is to knock the stilts from under those arguments and to say, no, human variance as measured by genetics doesn't recapitulate older ideas about a biological basis for race, which is not the same as saying that race doesn't exist. It most certainly does, but it exists as a social category, as a social construct and not as a biological mm -hmm. one. So there are, apart from, from skin color, as you've mentioned, there are other minor differences uh, like uh, ability to digest dairy. And if you come from a culture where you have, you only eat meat, for instance, that changes or has some sort of adaptation to that has happened in that population. We can still see those kinds of differences also on a geographical scale in the world, right? Yes, we can. And this is a really important point to make, because I think the temptation by an anti-racist and non-racist people over, over the last, I don't know how many decades, has been to deny the existence of biological difference, probably as a well-intentioned attempt to fight racism. You say that, well, you know, we're all, there's one race, it's the human race, and prejudicial action should not occur on any of us because we are unified. Now, the moral intentions of that are perfectly fine, but I think it's really important that we recognize that there is there are differences between people and you'd be you'd be crazy to say that they're not because we are a very visual species and pigmentation is the first and most obvious thing that we observe when seeing people from around the world. People have different skin tones. That that is an unequivocal fact. As you alluded to there, we also have um, geographical clusters of, of various other uh, aspects of biology and physiology which are encoded in our genes. And yes, you know, the Inuits, for example, have genes which are better associated with processing a very fatty diet, associated with, with the food that they eat. Lactase intolerance or persistence, which is the ability of people to digest milk after weaning, is almost universal in Europeans and almost completely absent in, non, in people of non-European descent, although is present in many different cultures around the world who have had been, whose ancestors were pastoralists, who actually farmed dairy. Now, that's an interesting point to make because white supremacists a couple of years ago identified this as a, as a way of reinforcing their biological white supremacy, which is, of course, absolutely absurd. Being able to drink milk doesn't make you racially pure nor superior to anyone. But more importantly, they, they also didn't identify that members of the Khoisan and uh, the Hutu in, in Rwanda and Middle Eastern camel herders and, and you know, a whole bunch of other people around the world who have had dairy farming ancestors also have this same ability. So recognizing that there is biological difference between people, but also at the same time recognizing that these are not 
discrete characteristics. They express continuity around the world geographically, but also none of them are none of them reinforce the essentialist nature of race that historically we would have been wedded to. So, for example, the lactase one is is, is not a bad example because it yeah you, know, you might say that white people can process milk after after weaning, except for the fact that loads of other people who aren't white can also do the same, or that you know the one about the Inuit being able to process high fatty diets to do with the lots of fish that they eat is that unique to Inuit? No, it's not. Is it? Um, would anyone classify the Inuit as a race because of this distribution of this gene in in these populations? No, of course they wouldn't. But this again goes back to the classification point. We can classify people in any way we want. We we could you know do it by our ability to process milk. Or you could have two races on Earth: milk drinkers and non-milk drinkers. I'm not sure anybody would want to base society <laughs> on on that structure. So classification is possible. It's just that none of the classifications we've applied to humans from a biological point of view, match up with the historical attempts to classify humans according to race and the contemporary derivation of that, which is the social categorization of race. You know, the terms that we're all familiar with, black people, meaning people with dark skin of recent African ancestry, that is not a meaningful biological thing to say. And we know that because genetics shows very clearly two things. One is there's more diversity and pigmentation in Africa than in the rest of the world put together. And the second thing is there's more genetic diversity within Africa than in the rest of the world put together. And yet we just say black people. So it's Mm -hmm. culturally important. It's a cultural classifier, but biologically black people is close to meaningless, but very definitely useless. Okay. So in light of all that, I think it's interesting to examine uh, one thing that happened uh, not too long ago when Bill Gates famously said uh, that when the COVID-19 vaccine is available, black people should be among the first to receive it. And it led to quite a lot of backlash and and even heated uh, up some of the conspiracy theories. Was it a racist comment uh, on his part or, or does he have the science to back up that statement at all? That's a very good question. And of course, I, I have no evidence or reason to think that Bill Gates is is racist in, in any way. So let me interpret what I think is meant by that, which I also think mm-hmm. is a valid thing to say. The racialization of COVID is very, very significant in two discrete ways. The first is that as soon as it was identified as coming out of Wuhan in China, this became a target for the racialization of this disease and prominent politicians, including Trump, calling it the Chinese virus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and worse, you know, in the last week, at the time that we're recording it, I believe he referred to it as Kung Flu, which is deeply, deeply unhelpful, I think, is the most generous way you can ex- express that. <laughs> but the, there have been literally thousands of physical assaults and racialized attacks based on this simple fact, the origin of this virus. People have also compared mm-hmm. it to the, and said, well, hold on a minute, this is the, you know, the Spanish flu, we call it the Spanish flu, but when in fact that's a, that is a misunderstanding of history as well. The Spanish flu didn't originate in Spain. We actually don't know where it originated. There are theories that it originated on a chicken farm in Kansas or possibly in France. But the reason it's called the Spanish flu is because Spain was the only country in 1918 that still had a free press as a result of the First World War censorship that was occurring in many countries, and so was reporting on the fact that this flu, this this pandemic was emerging. Not that it originated Mm -hmm. there, it was reporting of it that originated in Spain, hence the name the Spanish flu. Anyway, Wikipedia has a page of racialized assaults based entirely on COVID, which lists I think it's several thousand in the US alone, and there have been many in the UK, including students at my own university, University College London, on the street where I work. So that's the first way that COVID was was racialized. But the second way, and I think this is what's relevant to the Bill Gates question, is that from relatively early on, from March, it was becoming apparent that the probability of infection and indeed death was much higher in racialized categories in the UK being black and Asian, in America being black, Asian and Latino, Hispanic. And one of the responses to that, because I engage a lot with people who are racists, 
was that this was actually a demonstration that there was a biological basis to race, although that is obviously not true because not even the most ardent racist categorizes Asian people along with in the same category as black people or Hispanic people. All that serves to do is to say people who aren't white, so there's white people and other people. So the biological basis for that is in that regard is uninteresting and untrue. But the second way is, well, a lot, there's been a lot of scrabbling around to try and work out the etiology of, of that discrepancy. And there's been talk of it being related to vitamin D deficiency, which is associated with darker pigmentation in all mm-hmm. people with darker pigmentation. And it may be that that plays some role in some, my, my guess at this stage, a small percentage of the explanation of, of the racialization discrepancy that we're actually seeing. And the reason I say that is because racialization is real because medicine is racialized. And it's racialized against exactly those groups associated primarily with socioeconomic status and cultural factors rather than biological factors. So, for example, we know that in the UK and the US, black, minority, ethnic, Hispanic, Latino people are more likely to be key workers and therefore are more likely to be exposed to the virus and not capable of being in full lockdown or in isolation. They are more likely to live in dense housing in urban centres where the spread is understandably far greater. They're more likely Uh to live in multi-generational houses, which means increased exposure to older people and the death rate is much more significant than people over the age of 60, and so on. A whole bunch of reasons which go Uh much further than speculating about vitamin D to explain this very real racialized discrepancy that we are seeing in this devastating disease, which interestingly are not unique to COVID at all. These are well understood because these apply to all infectious diseases, which all affect black, ethnic, minority, Hispanic, Latino people at a higher rate. So so the racialization of medicine comes before the racialization of COVID. And in fact, we could have predicted that COVID would affect those minority groups at a higher rate without knowing anything about COVID whatsoever Hmm. because medicine is racialized according to socioeconomic grounds more than biological. So that's a long answer to your question, which is, was Bill Gates right? My interpretation is based on that racialization. And I think the answer is yes, that minority people, black, Asian, Hispanic, Latino people probably should have access to the vaccine Mm -hmm. when it arrives earlier than others or first in line maybe because of the racialization of medicine not because of any biological reason for that racialization yeah Mm -hmm. okay so how do you see the role of political correctness versus or in tackling racism well i suppose the first thing to say is that the phrase political correctness or which has evolved into wokeness Mm -hmm. They've both been around for decades. Wokeness or woke emerged, I think, in the Black Panther movement in the 1960s. But the odd thing, something that I'll never quite understand, is how those terms have been weaponized primarily by the right. And so that that, that is now, to be politically correct, is an insult if directed from the right. And the same is happening with wokeness. You know, similar with the phrase virtue signaling, which is another weaponized phrase, despite the fact that there's not necessarily anything wrong with signaling intent or political beliefs. The second thing is that humans signal virtue or otherwise all the time through every single action. Signaling is an inherent part of human communication because we are social organisms. So I'm, I'm quite interested in the sort of the semantics and, and the weaponization of semantics in this whole discussion. But that doesn't answer your question. The question was, what is the role of political correctness? Well, I suppose as a scientist, I shouldn't be interested in that even as a concept. What I should be doing is just presenting the data, which is anti-racist or no, it's non-racist if analysed and understood correctly. I also think, though, that this is a noble but ahistorical position for scientists and sceptics and people like us to take. Because it rests on the idea, the very, very pure principle that science, that data is morally neutral and apolitical. And that is something which literally has never existed in the history of of knowledge. (laughs) And so while it is a noble aim, it is simply and literally not true and never has been. Science is and always has been political because science is done by people. 
And genetics is particularly prone to this for reasons that are derived from what we were talking about earlier. So, for example, in genomics, we know much, much more about European genomes than anyone else on Earth for very understandable sort of practical reasons, which is that a lot of the research has taken place in Western Europe and America, but also for arguably structurally racist reasons, which are very closely associated with the first category. We, we simply haven't sampled many people from the rest of the world and yet often make very generalized statements and claims about the genetics of the people of the world that are actually largely based on a small sample. And that's something that we absolutely have to and are beginning to fix simply by taking more samples and working with people from around the rest of the world in order to understand human variation more. And, you know, incidentally, we know this phenomenon very well in other domains. We know that most drugs appear to be designed almost exclusively for not just Europeans, but European men. And that's a lot to do with the sort of structural biases that exist within society, that these are the people that we test these drugs on. We don't really know whether many drugs actually work effectively on 50% of humankind, by which I mean women, and much of humankind, by which I mean people who aren't European. So this is what I mean about science not being and never having been apolitical, much as though we would like it to be. This weirdly came up in, a, in an article by the physicist Lawrence Krauss just on, on the weekend, which I was heavily critical of for, for a number of reasons. It may be less untrue in astrophysics, but in my field, in the study of humans, I think it is inarguable that implicit, inherent biases and structural racism exists and has a pernicious effect on understanding human evolution, human diversity, human variation, but also more importantly, actually how we treat these conditions associated with being human, but also racialized groups. And that includes COVID as we were just discussing. Yeah, it's, uh, it seems uh, quite clear and um, I concur that science cannot be apolitical, but from a different uh, perspective, science is equipped to try to distance itself from the politics of things and to overcome those political biases. But we all have a, some of those biases, are holding on to ideas that some groups are allegedly being better at something and that's based on those differences that we see and you don't necessarily have to be someone with the classically racist attitudes to hold on to those ideas like uh, examples being black men have larger penises or african people are better at athletics and singing or jewish people are better at sciences and music etc so if we look at these differences is there anything that science can say about whether there is an actual difference that is genetic in origin or it's just a cultural concept? Yeah, again, a great question. And there's a lot to unpick in what you just said then. So, so let, me, let me see if I can get, get this all straight. So the first thing is, one has to question where those ideas comes from. Mm -hmm. This is in reference to what you, what you just said, because in some ways, these sorts of ideas are so baked into our society that we actually just don't question them. And I suppose if you are either actively racist or, or have racial biases as a result of being human and being part of our culture, then it's kind of easy to stop at the point where you say black people are better at explosive energy sports such as sprinting or have larger penises or Jews are better with money or you know playing chess based on the fact that there is some data to, su to support some of those things. But the role of the scientist is to dig beneath those those ideas mm -hmm. and actually well try and understand the etiology of where, why we say things like that and this is where it gets very sticky in different directions and so let me just try, try and pick a couple of those because those are racialized descriptions and they are stereotypes which are maintained in populations for various reasons now let me briefly talk about the physicalization of black people and why that is both a negative stereotype even though it sounds positive but where the origin of that comes from. It effectively comes from that earlier era of scientific racism in those early descriptions in taxonomical terms from people like Linnaeus again. And so often they refer to the less 
intellectually or inventiveness capabilities of sub-Saharan African people primarily, but also strength and sexual prowess. In modern terms, there is a group of active scientific racists, small but vocal, led by an active scientific racist called Richard Lynn, who has also been part of the movement to try and demonstrate national IQs and the racialization of national IQs, which is a very murky, tricky subject to get into. Uh, mm-hmm. But the, the point of raising this particular person, it's been demonstrated many times over that the data is either fraudulent or just false, right? So incorrect. And yet, and we've, 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 had this, we've had this as an issue within the last month or so when a significant paper in a journal was finally withdrawn because the authors were made aware of the data set that they were using having been drawn from deeply cherry-picked, fundamentally flawed national averages, which were absurd when you look at actually how the data was generated on IQ. So, for example, you know, using tiny sample sizes of children in care homes and basing national averages on things like that or where English wasn't a first language and so, and so on. The national IQ numbers are somewhere between absurd and deeply problematic, which is not the same as saying that there are differences in IQs as measured nationally. It's just that the main data sets that a lot of people are rely on either without checking or rely on because they are racist are, are fundamentally problematic. It is also the same group of people, broadly, who have been somewhat bizarrely obsessed with penis size, particularly in African and African-American men. Now, I mentioned this in the book um, because as far as I can tell, using the best data available that I could find, there is no evidence of any particular racialized or ethnicity or country-based group on Earth that have significantly different penis sizes to any other group. So it just doesn't seem to be true. Mm -hmm. The idea about sprinting, as I argue in the book, is largely derived from the fact that there hasn't been a white person in the Olympic final since 1980. And that year it was in Moscow, and so the Americans were boycotting anyway. But when you look at the data on that, that's only 58 men, right? So you've got N equals 58, and we're basing an entire... We're saying that, like, I don't know, a billion people? Or are we just talking about African-Americans? Or But basically, the stereotype emerges from a very, very limited data set, which I argue is much more culturally determined than biological. But the underlying point about this, and this, and this, the same argument can be applied to racialized stereotypes about Jewishness, are, again, that these are effectively recapitulations of much older and much more overtly racist principles. It's just that they have a gleam, a gloss of science, or in fact, pseudoscience in these cases, which just serves to reinforce the existing prejudices that already exist. And you might say, well, wait a minute, these, these are good characteristics. Being very good at short distance running, being muscular, being sporty, or being good at music or chess, or being good at intellectual pursuits, these are desirable characteristics, right? That's, that's not racism. We sometimes call this positive attribute racism. Well, A, as we talked about, they're not true. When you, when you scrape beneath the surface of the data, they just turn out to be not biologically uh, defensible. But more importantly than that, it is the recapitulation of earlier ideas that is more pernicious. Because what they say is black people, they have physical prowess, but not intellectual. Jewish people have intellectual prowess and and therefore are cleverer than other non-Jewish people. And these Mm -hmm. are exactly the arguments that were used, for example, by the Nazis in the run-up to the the Second World War and the Holocaust, the othering of a group of people by saying they are different to us in different ways is a way of justifying subjugation or, or persecution. And it is literally what happened in Nazi Germany. It is literally what continues to happen in America during the era of the current race riots as a result of the, the murder of George Floyd. So again, it's not just about understanding that the data is wrong or problematic or scientifically spurious or fraudulent, it is also recognizing that the stereotypes themselves are simply reinforcing these notions that have existed for centuries, if not thousands of years. And so this this again relates very, very specifically to this concept of structural racism. Uh, Some sociologists 
a couple of years ago, published an analysis of the number of references by media, by sports commentators, relative to white and black elite athletes. And what they found is that, I forget the exact numbers, it was in the the book, but the vast majority of references to black elite athletes was in describing their strength or their power or their speed, basically all physical characteristics. And the exact same proportion of comments when referring to white elite athletes referred to their brains, their ingenuity, and their hard workings. Mm. And so, you know, we don't even notice this stuff until it's pointed out. And, you know, if you're a sports fan, next time you're listening to commentary, just note, just listen to how often references to black athletes being their physical characteristics, their strength, their speed, and listen to how often there are references for white athletes in terms of their ingenuity and their thinking. These things, they're just baked into our culture. And I think we only get around them by seeing that. We, we, we just don't even notice. Yeah, and it's regenerating the same bias. Yeah. <laughs> so you say, you say it's baked into our culture. So why is there racism? Why are we racists uh, to, to some extent, all of us, I think? So is it is it something that we're born with, some sort of genetic xenophobia that maybe had some sort of uh, function way in the past? Or is it a learned behavioral trait? Well, I think it's definitely both because humans are tribal and we organize ourselves in groups and and in our deep evolutionary history, being part of an in-group versus an out-group may have had some great significance in in terms of our survival. I say that with another great caveat of mine, which is that I find evolutionary psychology to be a, a deeply problematic science and I was putting science in parentheses when I said that. However, to say that humans are tribal is that is a non-controversial thing to say. But the mechanisms by which we are tribal are highly variable and highly inconsistent through time and indeed in societies today. So for example, in a sort of trivial way, the last time I was in Malmo was when I was watching my football team, Ipswich Town, play <laughs> against Helsingborg in 2002. And the score was... Think three one to Ipswich, so I am. Uh, <laughs> Damn it! Do, you say, okay, yeah, sorry. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I am. It, it was, however, I should say, one of the greatest nights of my life, and the hospitality in Malmo and Helsingborg was, as expected, absolutely wonderful. So, thank you for that. Oh, all right, thanks. We enter, please. <laughs> <laughs> and um, anyway, so so that that's you know that's one of my tribes, as it is for many people. But then you know the definition of what of where I try to work out who I am or who you are, and you say, well, I'm. I'm British. I was born in East Anglia, so that's also a tribe, and that's where my football comes from. But I am also a scientist. I'm a geneticist, which is another tribe, but I'm also mixed race, and that sort of isn't a tribe for me, but it does make me different from a lot of people. And I like science fiction films, and I'm a skeptic and a nerd, and that puts me in a different category to lots of other different people. Anyway, so we've got, we we set ourselves up with these tribes because these are natural behaviors, because we're social organisms, and, and we are drawn to people who have similar beliefs or an interest to ourselves. So that that's uncontroversial. Sometimes they spill over into great conflicts, and historically that has been the case for all sorts of examples, including both you know geographical, religious, cultural, and and so on. Right. So humans are we we try pretty well to get on, but we're different from each other, and we we sometimes highlight those differences, and that can result in in fun conflicts like beating Helsingborg, or <laughs> terrible conflicts like wars. So the tribalism is real, but the racial tribalism is an invention, right? So that's a learned behavior. Yeah. And the reason I can say that with absolute confidence is because it is a new phenomenon. The racial categorizations that, w- that we use today are, are 300, 400 years old. And they're not older than that. That's, that's where they're invented. That's where they're invented by the, by the founding fathers of the scientific revolution and, and the enlightenment. And that's, not, that's very specifically not saying that there wasn't racism or prejudice or bigotry before that, of course not. It's just that it didn't tend to be along those heavily racialized lines of the social categories of race that we recognize today. We, we know of descriptions of racialized groups all the way back to the oldest literature in Western culture, which is the Iliad and the Odyssey. That, that's the first time we come across the word to describe Ethiopians or Sub-Saharan Africans, which is Ethiops. And that literally translates as burnt skin or blackened skin. So there Mm. is physical descriptions of phenotype right in our oldest literature. 
But in classical history and for most of history, intergroup conflict wasn't predicated on the racial categorizations that we use today. So tribalism is, is a natural part of the human condition, yes. Tribalism that is along racialized lines as we recognize today is a learned condition. So I think the answer to your question is it's absolutely both. Mm. All right. So that is uh, understandable. And, and that is clear that uh, it's both part of our genetic heritage and uh, learned behavioral trait. However, when it comes to tackling it, racism in general, can racial stereotypes be properly broken down or can these attitudes be really changed? And can science actually help us in that? And if so, how? Well, I think that the answer is yes. I, I think that recognizing that racial categories exists is is absolutely fine, and and cultural identities are absolutely crucially important in who we are as as individuals and and as groups. So again, it's you know re I want to reiterate the idea that um, race is real because we perceive yeah. it. Right, that's a, it is a social reality. Race to say race does not exist is I don't think is useful or true. But I think. You know, being equipped with scientific knowledge is never a bad thing. And the, <laughs> the fact that what, what we know about the biology of race or, or the, the non-biology of race, in fact, um, from a genetic and evolutionary point of view, is important. I'm, I'm not pretending that being knowledgeable about human history and human genetics is going to cure racism. Not at all. What I'm really, really concerned with is that science can't be used to bolster racism. It can't be part of the toolkit of bigotry because it doesn't do that. But of course, you know, science is hard and genetics is hard and, and understanding extremely complex statistical methods for breaking down three billion letters of genetic code in seven billion people is not easy. And God help me, I don't understand it nearly as well as most of my colleagues and my peer reviewers when it comes to writing books like this. But I'm, I'm a science communicator, right? I'm, in, I'm the middle ground between academic science and um, normal human beings. And I, I, I want to help people to be better equipped with scientific arguments against racial categorizations. And this is what I, you know, we, earlier we were talking about science being political or apolitical. I think this is a really important part of this conversation that we're not very good at having because there's a tendency in science and there's a tendency of scientists to try to be apolitical or to say the data isn't, isn't politicized. And also to put your head down and get on with your work. You know, I'm a scientist. I'm not a politician. I'm not interested in debating these sorts of cultural issues. I want to get on with whatever bit of cutting edge work I'm, I'm involved with. I think that that is a position that needs to be considered carefully. I started to think this not about race, but about climate change a few years ago, that given that, you know, 90 whatever percent of, of climate scientists think one thing, but 50% of the public think the opposite meant that we're somewhere along the lines, we're not doing our jobs right. We're not managing to educate people such that they understand non-controversial things within the academy. And that's really important mm -hmm. when we're systematically destroying the world. And in, in the case of race, it's really important when systematically recognizing that societies are structurally, structurally racist. So another thing that I found is in, in my field, a lot of geneticists don't know their own history and that's, that's understandable because you want to get on with your, with your contemporary research. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that it's important that we do. I think it's important that we expose our history. And there's a really good point to this. This is something we're talking about actively at UCL at the moment, which is in many ways the birthplace of both eugenics and, and, and a sort of real nursery for scientific racism in the late 19th and early 20th century. It's not that the history is worth celebrating. It's the trajectory of the history which is worth celebrating. Because there's only mm -hmm. one domain in human knowledge that has demonstrated the biological falsity of race, and that's genetics. And so this subject, which was founded by racists in a time of racism in order to subjugate people or in order to justify the enslavement and the conquering of nations of the earth, it is from that pool that a science emerged which demonstrated the absolute falsity of the, what we now know are pseudoscientific ideas that they were founded on. Now, that is the point of science. That is, that is exactly the thing that makes science the greatest human endeavor that we've ever, we've ever invented. It is to extract our prejudices from the processes of understanding reality.
it is to say that, you know, you founded these principles with political motivations behind them, whether you knew them, whether they were active or not. But the trajectory of our knowledge about human variation has been to show that the opposite was true. And that should be sung from the rooftops of every laboratory and every building on Earth, because that, that is a truly great thing. And that's what I want to celebrate. So it's very popular nowadays to to, to, to have your own DNA chartered through the various services like 23andMe. How valuable is that? Is that does that have any value or is it just uh, nonsense? <laughs> Well, I am well known for being extremely sceptical about about the value of genetic ancestry testing. I don't think it's it's nonsense, and it probably doesn't have no value. But I think that what those sorts of tests do is reinforce sort of ideas of genetic essentialism within academic science we thought we were abandoning 10 or 20 years ago. And I think that none of us anticipated that this would occur, that this would become such a big market. But as a result of the fact that it sort of taps into the natural desire of humans to tell stories, to be tribal, to have <laughs> their own narratives, to control their own narratives, and to position themselves on, in the trajectory of the human story, that is what these tests play into. Does that make them scientifically valid? No, I don't think it does. Does it make them very attractive? Yes, it does. Yes, it does very <laughs> much so. So the, the number of people who email me or contact me to tell me or ask me if they're descended from Vikings is a lot. <laughs> yeah, there's quite a bit of romanticism towards uh, Vikings for yeah, some reason. Yeah, absolutely, because, uh, because the Vikings were super awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and Thor from the Marvel films is ridiculously good looking. So, so that's fine. So, is there any biological reason to think that? No, there is not. And the truth of the matter yeah. is that all Europeans are descended directly from Vikings because of the way genealogy actually works. And equally, they're all descended from people that the Vikings conquered or traded with or yeah. the people who cleaned the Viking warriors' boots in exactly the same way everyone in Europe is descended from Jews and Huns and Angles and Saxons and, and the whole lot. Because the fact of the matter is we do not think about family trees accurately or or uh, in any sort of meaningful way. We like to identify single lineages when, in fact, we're descended from multitudes and we're incredibly inbred. And, you know, me and you guys are probably like fifth cousins or sixth cousins or something like that. <laughs> and, and that's just a sort of statement that I can say with a great deal of certainty, having never met either of you, but knowing that you're sitting in somewhere in, in Northern Europe, because that, you know, I, I have heritage from Northern Europe, so we're probably very closely related. Yeah, yeah I'm sitting in, in, in Eastern Europe. Mm. So you don't necessarily think that uh, this uh, or 23andMe and other projects like that can work like a stepping stone for science, like an introduction into how the science actually approaches this kind of uh, genetic lineage? Or it's just misleading, in your opinion? Well, I would love that to be the case. I would love people to, to take those tests and then read my book or the many articles by me and other people <laughs> pointing out why they're absolute nonsense. Um, no, I, did, I said they weren't absolute nonsense earlier, didn't I? So I should stick by that, why they are problematic. Um, and so maybe in that case, that does help us understand the general public education about genetics. I suspect, though, that the answer is for the most part, no. There's another different point, which is sort of a parallel point to what we're mostly talking about in this conversation, which is that when you buy specifically 23andMe, you're not the customer, you're not the client in that transaction, you're the product. Because mm. what you're actually doing in that transaction is you're paying a private company so that you can give them your most personal data, which is your DNA, so that they can monetize it. Ah, and in exchange yeah. for that, you get a bit of trivial information, well, I think it's trivial information, that is very appealing, a trinket. You get a little map that says, you know, 4% of your DNA is most closely associated with Denmark or whatever. <laughs> does that say anything about you? No, I don't think it does. Is it interesting? Uh, you know, sort of. But what you've done there is you've effectively given legally, you've given your, your most private information to a private company. Now, this was always open and overtly part of 23andMe's business plan. They, they, this is not secretive. This was stated in board members' interviews in 2013, I think is the earliest I've got references for. This is what they say. They want, they want to monetize people's genomes 
And the way they get people's genomes is by getting them to pay to give them to the company. Now, from a business point of view, this is genius. It's, it's, it's an <laughs> incredible way of organizing things. And, and incidentally, I make the parallel that it was actually invented by Francis Galton, the inventor of, of eugenics um, back in the 19th yeah. century, that, where he did exactly the same thing, but for slightly different reasons. He set up a lab in London in, in a big sort of state fair in 1884, I believe it was, where people paid three pence to have 11 things measured of them. And at the end of it, um, they got a little card, which was carbon copied. They got a little card with, with all these details, things like grip strength, height, weight, eye color, visual acuity, and a few others, right? And they go away three pence shorter, but they've got this nice card from a scientist saying, saying these interesting things. Cool, <laughs> right? 9,000 people did that over the course of a week at three pence each. Galton acquired the biggest human data set of biometrics ever until the 1950s or 60s. And with that, he invented many of the statistical techniques that we still use today and made a shitload of cash on, on top of it. It is a brilliant, <laughs> brilliant idea in, in a purely amoral sense yeah. in, in terms of its morality or its ethics. It's, it's problematic, but you know that's capitalism for you. Mm. What I want, I'm not in the business of telling people how to spend their money, right? That's, that's not my job. My job is in this specific regard is to say, hey, Try and understand what it is that you're paying for here. Because ultimately, you know, 23andMe, you pay them to give to get your genetic data. They sell on your genetic data along with millions of others um, as part of deals to, to uh, formulate and design new drugs. The drugs get sold back to you when you get sick with those particular disorders. So there, there isn't really an analogy for that. You know, people talk about how you can be both gameskeeper and poacher. In this scenario, they're kind of like gameskeeper, poacher, owner, trade trader, and you are nothing but the product. And I just don't think people realize that. Now they will. All right. This is a, a European podcast in English, but a lot of our listeners may not uh, actually read English books comfortably. Are your books translated into other languages? I can help you with one if you're not sure, because sometimes it's just the agents who know that. Uh, a Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived is translated into Swedish. I can tell you that. And Hungarian as well. Uh, I can give you some answers to these questions. So Brief History, was tra that, that was translated into I think 24 different languages and yes I but so you're in you're in Hungary are you yes I am yeah so yes the thing about so I've never been to Hungary and I really need to get there as soon as I can because some of the greatest mathematical biologists were and still are there Eos Svathmari is one of them one of the problems with the translations into the Swedish and I spent a lot of time in Sweden and a lot of time in Norway as well my brother actually lives in Uppsala ah. the, the biggest problem with translating into into Swedish or Norwegian is that most Swedes and most Norwegians speak English better than English people. <laughs> I've done signings in Stockholm and Oslo where they've had a pile of the translated book and they've had a pile of the English language book, the original, and two copies of the Swedish translated <laughs> one gets sold and the English ones get sold all the way out. The point is I'm very, very pleased that, that Brief History has been translated in so many different languages and it is one of the... I mean, it, the reason the title is that is it's slightly tongue-in-cheek. It was a joke title when we couldn't work out what the title was when I was writing it. <laughs> and then as my publisher was talking to people about the book, they sort of, it began to stick. It is about everyone on earth. It is the story of everyone because unlike other historical sources, traditional historical sources, the genome is a historical book that everyone has. It's not just written by the victors, by the kings and queens and the powerful. We have this data set in ourselves and only in the last five or ten years has it been accessible and, and we can begin to read it and you know that's humanity's story yeah so i think that uh, you, you earlier mentioned that you don't want to tell people what to spend their money on i don't want to do that either but uh, i can make a suggestion if they uh, spend some money on buying your books they will buy themselves something valuable, something that uh, can even change the way they think. So why don't they do that? And uh, you've got quite a few books already uh, in circulation, but you have a book coming up as well. 
So can you tell us something about that? Sure. Yes. Yeah. So, so How to Argue with the Racist came out in the UK in February. It comes out in America in August, and then there will be translations, and they, they sort of come out over the next couple of years or so. The next mm-hmm. book in the schedule is... I'm actually, I've actually got the next four books are planned, which is... Oh. <laughs> it's both good and terrifying at the same time. Um, so <laughs> the next one is a book by myself and... Hannah Fry, who is a mathematician at UCL, where I am as well. And we've written a, uh, a book which is called Rutherford and Fry's Complete Guide to Absolutely Everything Abridged. Uh, and it is, it's very different from you know, the, my main body of work, obviously, concerns genetics and human evolution. And, the, and the, this, this last book has been, you know, has a lot of politics and because it's about racism in it as well. This new one is much more lighthearted. It is stories that we love telling each other about why we adore science so much. It's about how science is capable of upturning one's prejudices and stereotypes and just how we understand the universe that's and that's the next one the one after that is going to be a somewhat of a sort of sequel to how to argue with a racist we don't have a title for it yet but it is going to be about the history of eugenics and then the one after that do you know what i'm not going to tell you <laughs> okay <laughs> let's say this we'll get you back uh, on the podcast when it's time to issue that book happily if i keep going at this rate we'll, we'll be talking to each other for the next 200 years <laughs> <laughs> oh well but uh we, we really appreciate that you spend this much time with us uh talking about, about uh racism and uh what science has to say about that and we wish you all the best for all your work your upcoming books and your shows we will keep listening to those and we encourage everyone to do so. So, Adam Rutherford, thank you very much. Thank you, Pontus, and thank you, Andres. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. So this was fun. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) No, it was great. I I think uh, we haven't had too many interviews recently, and I think this was a great interview to maybe get this started a little bit again. Uh, Adam Rutherford is a great communicator, and he's funny and uh, lovely to talk to. Yeah. And after the interview, we had a little bit of a chat, which was uh, great fun too. And uh, let me just say this as a proud Hungarian. Probably some some of our listeners know the name Urs Sotmari, whom Adam mentioned during the interview as well. He's a Hungarian evolutionary and uh, mathematical biologist. Uh, he's amazing. He wrote a couple of books as well on the topic, uh, some textbooks with uh, John Maynard Smith as well. And we started uh, talking about me being in Hungary. And then Adam asks me if I knew Urs uh, Sotmari personally. And unfortunately, I- I've met him a couple of times, but he doesn't know who, I'm at, who I am, so I wouldn't claim... <laughs> us being acquainted mm. but i regard him very highly then adam says that urs satmari had a great influence on him at the beginning of his uh, studies and career and that sounded so amazing that an english guy an english geneticist was in any way influenced by a hungarian guy whose name is not known to too many people in the world but uh in this narrow field that he's in he is so science is so international and when people speak highly of one another it's so amazing to see that they can be from different parts of the world from the other side of the globe and uh, they appreciate each other's work and science is just cool it's an international endeavor so go science and again thanks to adam rutherford for joining us yeah, and gene- genetics specifically is such a hot topic. It is. There's so much happening and has a lot has happened over the last 10 years, but a lot more is coming. And it's it's so fascinating. And we're living through this and we, we learn new things almost daily, I, I would say. So, so And also, if you, as we mentioned, I think briefly, if you uh, want more Adam Rutherford in your lives, and why shouldn't you? Yeah. If and if you're fast listening to this podcast <laughs> on the on the sixteenth of July this evening on the sixteenth, Adam will be the guest on uh, Skeptics in the Pub Online, the endeavor that the, the British Skeptics has set up. They every Thursday at uh, seven o'clock their time, so that's eight o'clock uh, Central European time. 
they have a Skeptics in the Pub online event. And tonight it is Adam Rutherford. So, and it will be recorded and you can see it afterwards. I believe they released on YouTube a couple of days later. You shouldn't miss that too. Mm -hmm. Good, good. But with that in mind, I think uh, we have to close the show. And uh, I'd like to thank you. Pontus for joining me today. Thank you. It's been fun as always. And I'd like to uh, thank our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, when we will be joined again by Annika, goodbye. Hey, do. Bis dann. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can And it's, of course, to explain our the pun of being the real ESP. Oh yeah, I get it. I get it. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, if it was if it was real ESP, then I wouldn't have to say it. They just know it. Exactly. Okay, sure. Let me say it now. And if you love love us, then <laughs> maybe I was too stupid. Please love no, us. Please. Yeah. No. no. And it's useful to have you point out that my diary is incomplete. And now I know <laughs> when I'm doing that lecture. <laughs> All right. Okay. You're welcome, organizers of Skeptics in the Pub Online. <laughs> Agreed. The one, one example I want to give before you go to the next question, because I'm not very good at giving short answers, as you've probably noticed. <laughs> <laughs> is that I've gone into university lecture mode, but stop me.